We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined this evening by Angelica Ong of the Taipei Times. Hello, hello. And Dimitri Bures of the China Post. Hi, how do you do? And we'll begin with the latest coronavirus news once again and the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Wednesday beginning its rollout of the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine. Now, students aged between 12 and 17 in Taipei, New Taipei, Taoyuan, Tainan and Miaoli County received their first shot of the vaccine that same day on Wednesday, while students in other cities and counties began receiving their first jabs on Thursday. Now, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine rollout marks the first time that that age bracket has been able to receive a coronavirus jab since the government's inoculation program began in March. Now, the Ministry of Education has said that some 93.1% of the 1.39 million children at school aged between 12 and 17 have handed in affirmative consent forms for the vaccination. Now, meanwhile, Premier Su Jung Chung and Health Minister Chen Shih-jong this week faced questions from lawmakers about the government's vaccination program and its vaccination purchasing policy. The Premier told lawmakers that the government expects the island's first dose vaccination coverage rate to hit 70% at the end of October. And he also touted cooperation between the central and local governments for the success. Now, the Central Epidemic Command Centre says that now 50.16% of the island's population has received a first dose of coronavirus vaccine. And, but, there's a but there, because only 7.7% of the population have so far received the two doses need to be fully vaccinated. Now, figures show, if you're interested in figures, that the first dose coverage passed 10% on July the 4th, it then passed 20% on July the 17th, and 30% on July the 29th. Now, the number of doses administered slowed down somewhat in August due to a shortage of vaccines, but around 40% of the population had still gotten their first dose by August the 24th, and the first dose coverage coverage finally surpassed the 50% mark on Thursday of this week. Now, more figures if you're more interested. Nearly 65% of people who got the first dose received the AstraZeneca vaccine. 29% got the Moderna vaccine and around 6% opted for the locally developed Medigen vaccine. And Health Minister Chen Shih-jong was busy defending the government's vaccine procurement programme in the Legislative UN and responding to lawmakers who questioned the alleged lack of transparency in the process. Chen said that it's better not to publicise when vaccines are purchased, as manufacturers have requested that such information is not divulged. And the health minister went on to say that delivery schedules also kept under wraps due to concerns that the number of available doses continually changes. And there's concerns that some countries could fight over the amounts if such details are announced. So, Angelica, we've got the BioNTech vaccine going out to school children now, and we've got the Premier and Health Minister defending the government's vaccine policy in the Legislative UN. Well, I have to say, uh, I give the government high points when it comes to keeping COVID out. But it is true they've fallen behind when it comes to vaccine procurement. And it is true that um, I would feel a lot better about Taiwan's chances of um, surviving this wave of coronavirus if, if we, we had more shots in arms. But at this point, it's, it's, it's rather pointless to to grill um, Chen Shizhong over what was purchased when and and how. We, we just got to get on with it. We got to roll on with it and uh, uh, hopefully get through this thing as a country. Well, uh, well I do agree. Uh, Taiwan's uh, did a great job. The, the vaccination campaigns so far have been very successful. 
but we need to well we need to stress that Taiwan's low vaccination rate remains a risk for the community. The problem is that we need more international travel and international travelers as large stacks of the economy is struggling with uh, current restrictions. Foreign professionals can't get in. Foreign teachers and students can move here. So meaning that the local economy, not the major corporation making big profits through uh, international exports, the local economy is struggling to recover. So, well, uh, Taiwan has shown some flexibility in recent weeks, and we've seen the arrival of more BNT vaccines, which is great news. Well, in order to allow residents to travel back and forth uh, with Europe and the United States, well, we need more visibility and maybe more information about vaccines and how they will be coming, and procurement programs maybe for this year, but also for next year. So some opposition members, some uh, businessmen already ask some uh, very important questions, and I think they deserve an answer because we should know more about what's coming next instead of uh, waiting and relying on some leaked information and not knowing exactly what's going to happen next. Well, for foreigners like me and many foreigners in Taiwan, maybe they just want to know, well, when they can go back home and maybe come back afterwards. And Angelica, what about the transparency there, the lack of that Dimitri was hinting oh, about? Oh, it's, I mean, it's very frustrating. I think uh, Minister Chen has a point about um, it being, uh, it's, it's not reasonable to ask that every last uh, deal be telegraphed ahead of time. But what I want to know now is results. When are the shots getting into Taiwanese arms? I think that is the bottom line information that they should absolutely been give, be given pressure on. When, are, when, when, when am I going to get my second shot? I've had one shot of Moderna. Um, and uh, uh, Dimitri is right on the money. No matter what a great job Taiwan does with coronavirus control, if we can't get our people in and out of the country, um, we're being hurt. We can't afford to be the last country in the world under quarantine. People are moving. People are moving in Europe, in the U.S. They're opening up, and Taiwan needs to get business done. People need to get in and out. So um, I think it's absolutely legitimate to put pressure on the government, not on like what happened in the past, but what's going on right now. When are we going to get our vaccines? I mean, Dimitri, but do you think the, the government is possibly uh, erring on the side of very caution? I, I do understand, and they need to be cautious because there is a lot of competition to uh, competition to get those vaccines. Taiwan is not the only country trying to get those vaccines, but Taiwan has the resources, and financially, I think Taiwan can afford these vaccines. So when a big businessman puts uh, billions of NT dollar on the table to buy BNT vaccines, which that means the government can do that as well. It's pretty easy to make a phone call to Shanghai and sort out those issues in a smooth and easy when to get the vaccines, to get the vaccines we need by next year. But without proper information, all we hear is speculation from the media, and the speculation is not good. I mean, it's not good given the state of the economy right now and the fact that just one out of ten people in Taiwan is fully vaccinated so far, and that's worrisome. I just want to add, when we say fully vaccinated, that means two doses. But as we all know, we're we're facing up against a Delta variant. So that might mean we need a third booster. So, um, like, we 
we did such a great job of fighting the first wave of COVID and even keeping down the second wave, the Alpha variant. But the Delta variant, in the end, mark my words, it's going to come for Taiwan. And if we don't have enough vaccination coverage, then everything we did before is going to be for naught because it's just going to rip through the population. We've seen it happen in Vietnam. We've seen it happen in so many other countries that did a great job with the coronavirus until this year. So I cannot stress this enough. We, we need vaccines, and I don't care how we get them. I don't care if they come from China. I, I don't care. <laughs> At this point, I don't care if they're made in China. Just, just give us vaccines. We need it, we need it now. We need it, need it in our arms. And moving on now, and the government on Wednesday of this week announced that it has formally submitted its application to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. Economics Minister Wang Meihua says the government has been negotiating unofficially with the Free Trade Group's member states on joining the agreement and has reviewed its laws. And she says that some of those laws, well, Taiwan might need to amend its laws to be in line with the requirements under the deal. Now, the application was sent to New Zealand, which serves as a depository nation for the pact, and it will now be full to the other 10 member countries for review. Now, President Tsai went on Thursday of this week, took to social media to call on Japan to support Taiwan's application to join the CPTPP, which is a bit of a mouthful, but we'll get to that in a minute. And writing on Twitter, she urged Tokyo's backing, saying that Taiwan wishes to join the partnership and is ready to accept all the rules and regulations. And she went on to say that her administration has been preparing to join the accord for the past five years and is confident that Taiwan's membership in the deal will strengthen joint economic development and benefit people across the region and the world. Now, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe responded to Tsai's social media comment there on Twitter, saying that Tsai has demonstrated her administration's determination to join the trade bloc and it's extremely important for Tokyo to support Taiwan's bid. However, Taiwan has reportedly submitted the application under the title, this is according to the China Times today, the separate customs territory of Taiwan, Penghu, Jingmen and Matsu, which of course could cause some problems. Now, the island's leading trade negotiator, John Dung, this week also pointed out that China's membership in the trade bloc could also prove problematic because it could work to basically stymie Taiwan's joining. And, of course, China only applied to join the trade bloc a week ago. John Dung also pointed to other issues, including dealing with Taiwan's decade-long ban on Japanese foodstuffs from areas affected by the 2011 Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant meltdown. Now, although the Thai administration has been working on lifting that ban, there remains widespread public op- opposition to the import of foodstuffs from the affected area. So, Dimitri, joining the, um, I'm going to I'm gonna have to say it again here, the CPTPP, all sounds well and good, but there are several roadblocks in the way. Well, for once in a while, I would say that you know, authorities clearly understand the challenges of such bid, and the good news is that they have shown some flexibility in the application name for the first time in many years. So, well, we must keep in mind that Taiwan needs the approval of 11 member countries before it can join the trade deal, which equates to negotiating individual FTAs at the same time with every party in the trade deal. Taiwan will also need to solve complex issues, complex issues with the opposition parties, such as the vegetable imports from Japan issue, meaning that progress will be slow until after the next regional and maybe the next presidential election. So it will take time. 
And another issue is that, well, Singapore will be the next state heading the secretary of the Trans-Pacific Trade Deal. Regretfully, Taiwan hasn't been able to sign an FTA with Singapore for years, mostly because of endless arguments about the name of the country. So, well, we still don't know. We, we don't know why Taiwan waited until now to pitch his bid. But with the absence of the U.S. Uh, in the trade deal so far, this might even prevent Taiwan, further prevent Taiwan from quickly gaining a foothold in the trade pact. So, well, any... Um, I think I would, I would welcome any move from Taiwan authorities to smooth the process and try to move as quickly as possible. Taiwan has shot itself in the foot by being dragging, it, dragging its foot on this process. Japan has been jumping up and down, telling us as soon as it receives a chair, it's a rotating chair. Please, this is the time. Join now. It's going to take a year. The accession process, um, as Dimitri correctly pointed out, it takes a while because you have to work it out with all the membership countries. And if we get shut out now, if China manages to join the CPTPP before us, the, it's going to be such an enormous irony. Because you have to remember, before there was a CPTPP, it was a TPP. And it was started by the United States as a way for regional countries to have a trade pact, to have more independence from China. Instead, it's going to become the thing where China has the RCEP and China has the CPTPP, and Taiwan is left out in the cold. And why did we delay? Why did we drag our feet? For the stupidest of possible reasons, because we won't allow the import of Japanese food um, in the wake of the Fukushima incident, right? And that is domestic fake news issue ginned up by the KMT, and and we might all be hurt because of it, because if we're shut out of this deal. I'm telling you, um, according to uh, estimates by the government, that's like that's a 2.5% shift in our potential GDP. It would be an utter disaster. And I just hope that our bid, uh, the the, the, the uh, ruling DPT had no sense of urgency, zero. I just hope our bid, which our hand was forced by China's bid, um, I just hope that it's in time. And Angelica, staying with the Japanese food from the Fukushima area, and of course, this is going to cause a bit of a stink in the legislative UN. I mean, the government, because no doubt someone is going to push for a referendum on the issue, another referendum on the issue. Yeah. Taiwan doesn't have the time. I, I just wish that there can be some sort of proportion. Um, I just, honestly, I want to say here to any KMT um, party member, legislator, I don't care, listen to me. Remember, this is your country too. In trying to bring down the DTT, I know that is your goal. Don't accidentally drag down all of Taiwan. Because if we don't make it into this deal, that's what's going to happen. We're not just going to be diplomatic orphans. We're going to be economic orphans also. And we cannot afford that. Dimitri. President Tsai Ing-wen is a former trade deal negotiator. I guess I, I, I'm 100% sure she understands how do we negotiate a deal like that. 
But to get the deal done, she needs to talk to the opposition parties. And that's why I'm so, I'm so glad that there is some flexibility, especially in the name for this potential agreement. So what if you can sit with the opposition parties, you, you stop the propaganda, you do the, the statements in the media, you make it, you sit together uh, in one room and you tell them exactly how you're going to do it and how they can participate and even get the, some of the credits if the trade deal is signed in the end. So without cooperation, without flexibility, well, this trade deal will go nowhere because now time is running fast and not, I mean, Taiwan, time flies at a different speed here and in China. In China, they will smooth the process. A lot of things are going to happen very quickly. Taiwan, it's sometimes a bit bumpy and it takes time. So it's time to sit and discuss quietly without the media in the room. And staying with trade, China this past weekend suspended the imports of more fruitstuffs from Taiwan. This time it was custard apples and wax apples. Now, Chinese authorities claim the decision was due to the presence of mealybugs in shipments of those fruits on multiple occasions this year. However, Beijing has reportedly yet to provide any further details. Foreign Minister Joseph Wu condemned the import ban, describing it as a hostile move that violates international trade norms. And he also went on to accuse Beijing of weaponising trade. Agriculture Culture Minister Chen Ji-jong said the government is hoping to resolve the technical plant quarantine issue with China based on World Trade Organization standards. But he's stopping short of saying that Taiwan will take the matter to the global trade body for arbitration. So, Dimitri, more, we, of course we lost pineapples to China, didn't we, earlier this year? And now we've lost um, custard apples and wax apples. Well, but yeah, we, we still, but now we have a strategy, I think, which is a good news, because this is the first time for Taiwan... Uh, Taiwan has never brought a dispute on agricultural products into WTO. Still, we should keep in mind that the process will be long, complex, and, and painful at the same time. So remember first that the discussions at the WTO will be mostly about facts, regulations, and quarantine procedures. So the goal here is to demonstrate that the procedures in place are fair for Taiwan and other countries. That's it. So in this case, communication will be key to find a compromise like in the banana issue between Taiwan and Japan in March this year. Uh, I don't know if you remember, there was was also uh, a few hundred boxes of bananas that were destroyed by uh, Japan's customs because they, well, they were uh, some, uh, they found some chemicals uh, in in the bananas. But they, they managed through communication, they managed to solve these issues. So... The last thing we need to keep in mind is the process, which is going to be long. In the end, the final ruling will, ruling will be painful. Will be painful for all the parties, whether you win or not, because the risk is the time is not on the side of the fruit producers. Uh, you uh, starting this this new this uh, uh, we call it the mediation with the WTO, which is going to take months and years. So uh, fruit producers on the short term won't have any income. So they can't export their products to China, and they have to find a new market. So the final ruling, if uh, the producers are eventually compensated at the end, uh, your market share are gone. You're not going to get them back because another producer from Malaysia managed to sell its bananas or its products to China. So these things are never going to come back. So uh, if you if we take into account that Taiwan exports about one billion anti U.S. dollar per year uh, in agricultural products to to China, uh, these procedures and and 
the risk of losing your market share, uh, it's something, well, that's why it's important to go through the WTO, but it's going to be painful in the end. And even if the, comp- the, 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 the discussion takes a long time to, to, to get though, to this final ruling, it's going to take uh, too much time. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit further than Dimitri. I would say that it, if Taiwan is dumb enough to go to WTO on this issue, it is going to lose. Because we don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to um, our, ag- our agricultural rules. Because, um, yeah, China banned uh, Taiwanese pineapples, wax apples, custard apples. Do you know how many t- Chinese agricultural pro- um, products are banned by Taiwan? Um, okay, I don't have the list in front of me. But uh, rest assured, it is huge compare to the number of products banned by China. And we also ban, we ban agricultural products from so many different countries, um, even from the EU, who has very, very high standards. Um, when it comes to agricultural product trade, we have sheltered up domestic producers so much. We really don't have a leg to stand on in international, any kind of international arbitration. I think the smart thing to do is to figure out how to sort out um, the uh, the pain of the farmers that are hit for these uh, um, products, ASAP, um, domestically amongst ourselves, how to spread the pain, how to find alter- alternate markets. But going to the WTO, not only will it be lengthy, expensive, and painful, we're just not going to win. And, of course, Dimitri, Angelica mentioned alternative markets there. And, of course, when we had the pineapple issue, of course, the government made a big statement, freedom pineapples. And we, they shipped a bunch to Japan and said, hey, this is really good. Japan has bought all the surplus pineapples that would have gone to China. But, I mean, there's only so many fruits that Japan wants to buy like that, of course, you know. Well, I mean, this, this is always... Uh, we've seen these so many years. Uh, the We start with bananas, then pineapples, now it's going to be wax apples and... I just feel, I just uh, worry about the military and all these young uh, men who will have to eat fruit all day, (laughs) you know, and we are talking about like a lot, thousands of tons of apples and bananas and everything. So uh, the the problem is that there is no country in the world, there is no place where they're waiting for a huge amount of fruit and the, a market where, the, where there is no competitor. You have to shift. If you have to shift to a new market, you start with 1%, 2%, 3%. You grow your market share. And we're talking about years here, not just something that happened overnight. So knowing that most farmers in Taiwan, uh, they have they don't, very low income. Uh, most of them are 50 plus, 60 years old. Uh, they rely on selling their production and and getting a uh, little income to survive i don't know if they can keep up that way for that many years so we can I, support we can eat more fruit and we we truly hope the government can help but australia tomorrow cannot swallow that many apples and bananas and we hope that there is a short-term uh, issue to this problem but i don't think it's that simple I want to just jump in on another point. Absolutely, we should help the farmers because they're vulnerable, and Taiwan in general should do a better job of protecting its vulnerable citizens from pain. 
But I also have to add, uh, the whole economic calculus for growing these fruits um, needs to be re-examined. Wax apple and custard apples, uh, fruit production in general, um, it, it's a very resource-intensive um, venture. We're putting a lot of water, we're putting a lot of uh, fertilizer inputs, and we have to consider maybe the longer-term solution is to just grow the fruit that's enough to satisfy domestic demand and any non-Chinese export demand. Um, maybe we just need to grow less wax apples, and that may not, might not be a bad thing for Taiwan in the long run. And on that note, we'll take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. Now, in case you've been living in a cardboard box or a baked bean can for the past several weeks, the KMT will be heading to the polls tomorrow to elect its new chairman. Now, the election pits incumbent chairman Johnny Jung against former Zhanghua County Magistrate Zhuo Bo Yuan, Sun Yat-sen School President Zhang Ya-jong and former New Taipei Mayor Eric Ju. Now, the candidates held their televised debate last Saturday and once again, the main point of contention among the candidates was China. But Angelica, of course... It's not just China the KMT has to worry about, it's also Taiwan. It is, well, I think the biggest KMT trouble right now is uh, this nutty professor called Zhang Yazhong. He is the candidate, the black horse candidate that came from nowhere, came from downtown to completely dominate the debate, wipe the floor with his op- opponent. And he's been um, shooting up in the polls, and uh, uh, not not to put too fine a point on it, but if he manages to win the chairmanship tomorrow, um, everybody else in the KMT has troubles. Dimitri. Well, I, I, I think we can say that this election is really an important, it's a milestone for the party's recovery, for the opposition party's recovery. But really, it's, it's too early to argue whether the outcome of the election will impact the chances of the opposition to get back to power in the next election. We need to keep in mind a few things. First, we need to remember that around 300,000 uh, party members will vote in the chair election. So appealing to those beyond the party is not part of the dynamic here. And that's why we see such a focus on unification, because maybe that's uh, that's an issue for uh, those party members who are mostly older uh, actually care about. But it doesn't mean that the Taiwanese society and young people uh, in, within two years for the next election are uh, ready or willing to talk about these issues. So it's all about who has more support within the party and who can bring voters to the voting stations. So for reference, only 35% of electors voted when Chiang was elected chair in 2020. So if we take into account that KMT members are overwhelmingly older, in 2019 only 3% of members were under 40. So as turnout is already likely to be low, not achieving a true majority would leave the new chairman with a very weak mandate as the new leader of a still badly divided party. So uh, in this case, 
that could leave the door open for a candidate that could maybe transcend those traditional blue and green divide in the next presidential election. So, well, let's see what happened, what happens tomorrow. And then from there, let's see the dynamics and what happened to the party after that. And the government is pushing ahead with its bilingual 2030 policy. The cabinet has now approved a draft bill to establish a centre for bilingual national development, which, if passed by lawmakers, will work to improve English learning environments at all levels of education and also to train government officials. While the Ministry of Education has announced a series of English teaching guidelines for schools from elementary to high school level. There you go. However, there are still concerns about the government's ability to make its bilingual policy a reality. And I spoke with teacher trainer Jenna Cody about the issues facing Taiwan's bilingual future. Good evening, Jenna. Good evening. So, I mean, the Cabinet approving a draft bill to establish a centre for bilingual national development and the Ministry of Education announcing a series of English teaching guidelines for schools. I mean, obviously you read about them, you know what they're about. I mean, what are your opinions about what they're doing and are they going in the right direction there? Um, There are a lot of things to discuss here. I mean, the first thing that really pops out at me is the dates that they keep setting. These, these dates like 2024, 2030, and the first question is really, are they realistic? Um, honestly speaking, from my perspective, they're not. I don't necessarily think that the bilingual by 2030 plan itself is bad or unrealistic, which I know is a not very popular opinion, but I do work in this field professionally, and that's my professional opinion. But this idea that you could get teachers in 60% of schools or a certain percentage of teachers or whatever teaching in English by 2024 just seems overly ambitious to me, especially given that we're in the middle of a pandemic when it's reasonably likely but not assured that students will even be in schools in person and there is a glut or a backlog of English teachers already hired from foreign countries who can't enter Taiwan and are currently petitioning to enter Taiwan. So 2024 just seems like a highly unrealistic date to be setting. And I understand why these officials set dates like that. They want to make it seem like they're doing something, that they're not just making up policies and having no movement, but perhaps they might be taken a bit more credibly if they set more realistic timelines. Uh, On top of that, there's the question of, Are we ready in terms of local training? Because a lot of what they're talking about is training up local teachers. I think that's fantastic to be training up people locally to be teaching these classes simply because being a subject teacher, even if you already speak English, you still need specialized training in something called CLIL. That's Content Language Integrated Learning. Well, if you're an English teacher and you're going to be helping out in a subject classroom or perhaps you're qualified to teach the subject, you still need this extra training. So it's good that the ministry is thinking about that. I think the main question is, can that be completed by 2024 to the extent that we can actually have these teachers executing it in the classroom? And to me, the timeline is what seems most unrealistic about that. I do think that most teachers in Taiwan, uh, local teachers, are... You know, they're qualified, they're well-trained. I work with them. They're good people who know what they're talking about. But the timeline of the training concerns me a lot. When it comes to the foreigners recruiting foreign teachers, um, one thing that concerns me is they're not really making clear exactly who it is they're looking to recruit. 
So a good teacher or teachers that you would need to do this kind of program would either be subject teachers with this CLIL training I mentioned or language teachers that could serve as like a team teacher, so two teachers in the classroom, making sure that the content is delivered and it's delivered in English or in, in a foreign language. And if they're just going to be recruiting any foreign teachers, they might be qualified to teach, but it's really unclear if they'll have this training. So I'd like to see a bit more transparency on like exactly who they're looking for. Um, then that comes to the sort of what happens when these foreign teachers they recruit come in and start working with the local teachers. A couple of issues in the industry or the field that we see is that the local teachers, they earn less money than the foreign teachers in many cases. And when it comes to English language education, often the foreigner is seen as sort of the language expert or authority, which brings in all these questions of privileging these native speaker um, opinions or ideas, which may not be in line with the local context, and maybe not listening as much or not prioritizing local context um, ideas or plans from local teachers who have high proficiency English and are perfectly capable of leading these classes themselves. You could kind of see that in the petition from the foreign teachers who want to come to Taiwan, where they talked about how, oh, Taiwanese co-teachers are taking on this extra load from classes that would normally be taught by native speakers. And my very first question as a professional with that was, well, why are the Taiwanese teachers co-teachers when research consistently shows that high proficiency local teachers with the appropriate training can lead those classes just as well, if not better. So those are just some of the very basic questions underlying whether or not this is a good idea. I think moving on even deeper from that, there's a still a lot of criticism or a lot of um, doubt that the entire idea of bilingual by 2030 is a good idea. And I understand that. Um, certainly there's this feeling that the government is neglecting local languages, including, you know, Taiwanese, Hakka, indigenous languages, also the mother tongues of uh, other immigrants to Taiwan, so Indonesian, Vietnamese, and languages Taiwanese students are interested in, such as Korean and Japanese. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that. Um, if you actually read the Bilingual by 2030 plan from the National Development Council, it addresses this. And it does say that those languages should also be given equal treatment. There's no plan to make English a second official language or anything like that by 2030. That's been dropped. But a lot of people haven't been the plan, and I read the plan, and I think that there are some serious questions about whether or not this on-paper commitment to local languages is sufficient. And so people sort of see English coming in, and then you see tweets by Lai Qingdo talking about Mandarin and English bilingual, when Taiwan is already a multilingual society. And of course, it could feel a bit jarring, and your first impression might be to kind of reject it. And so I think that the Ministry of Education really needs to clean up its message and have a little bit better 
PR on this, be a bit more transparent, set more realistic goals, because at the end of the day, more than any other country in the region, Taiwan does need English. Um, no other country in the region needs to prove to the rest of the world that it is indeed a country. So Taiwan needs to bring its message to the international community in a way that, say, South Korea or Japan uh, does not. So I would urge people to reevaluate the idea in that sense, but remain critical about some of the ways they are perhaps implementing it or some of the dates they're setting, whether or not the training will be sufficient, are they privileging native speaker voices who don't have local context knowledge? These are the sorts of questions we should be asking. And, of course, what about the reports of there being a dearth of trained English teachers from foreign countries in Taiwan at the moment? Um, there are. So as a teacher trainer, I am still in touch with a lot of my former trainees. We have line groups. I see them talking. And they're just constantly buzzing with, you know, basically saying, we're hiring. Do you know anybody? So there are a lot of foreigners in Taiwan, but there's a very, there is a dearth of trained foreign English teachers here who are perhaps ready to take up these positions. So the question is, do we want to pressure the ministry to bring them in, or do we want to try to recruit more locally and get foreigners who already lived here, who already live here, trained up to take these jobs, which is possible but would take time. A lot of the foreigners looking to come in, it doesn't say this on the petition, but a lot of the ones looking to come in are certified teachers. So they already have the training that, you know, local hires would need. Some people have said that this dearth of foreign teachers could be made up with local teaching talent. And I agree with that. But again, there's some like specialized training that I think we need to look at to see if that needs to be offered even to like local teacher hires to make up for that. And of course, this is all right. Talking, we're talking here about English teaching, basically at the school level, basically at the university level. Yes. But of course, the other issue about Taiwan bilingual twenty thirty is basically government, government agencies and the, their employees' English language ability. Yes, that is actually a really interesting part of the bilingual by twenty thirty plan. Uh, if you read the thing, it's not very long. Um, I would say roughly half of it is taken up by talking about improving the, improving the English proficiency of government employees. And also there's a lot about just information available from the government, websites and documents. I think it's a fantastic idea, and I would generally agree that right now the, uh, the, the comprehensibility of what's ava available from the government in English and the amount of it is not high, a lot of it is not complete. So if you look up a law in Chinese, then you look up the same law in English, things might be missing or they're translated oddly. Um, the forms are not always clear, and the proficiency of the workers varies. So at the immigration agency, pretty much everybody speaks English from my memory. I haven't been there in a few years, but from my memory they do. But once you leave that, it, it tends to go down. Um, even at the Ministry of Education itself, you find that whenever there are meetings in two languages, there's pretty much always an interpreter there. And that's not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing or that's a problem, but it shows that we do need like comprehensive training of 
government officials. And I think it's a great idea to have officials who speak more than one language. The question is, can they actually do that by 2030? And I haven't seen enough movement on that for me to say that that's necessarily possible. Do you think the government maybe should be um, leading by example rather than saying, hey, school children, university children, you have to learn English. But of course, the government officials, maybe their English isn't so good. So maybe they should be making an effort to learn English in government agencies more. Uh, that's a really interesting question. I think it, it, it sure, um, so, like public schools are also government run. So I think the Ministry of Education needs to be the first one to really lead by example. And yes, I think that if the adults are trying to tell parents, um, kids may or may not have their own opinions on this, but for, certainly for the government to convince parents this is a good idea, that it would be good for them to lead by example and for them to basically get that training. I don't know if I would say first, but at least concurrently, along with providing just better professional development in this CLIL area for teachers. Because part of it is also there was a case of a bilingual school that was mostly for the children of foreigners, and they just sort of pushed teachers into it. A lot of my friends have kids that were in this school, and teachers were just kind of pushed into doing this and teaching their subjects in English. And honestly, from what I've heard, they were not prepared. So, yeah, the government could lead by example, but they also need to provide adequate training to the teachers because where it fell apart, it fell apart because these teachers were asked to do something. They were not, you know, they might have been capable to do with the appropriate training, but in the end, they just weren't. So I feel like there, there's a little bit of both there. Lead by example, but also, like, give your teachers what they need and think about the sort of compensation you're offering your teachers. So you're asking them, oh, prepare to teach, you know, a certain percentage of your classes in English or a certain percentage of you will be teaching in English. Um, what are we paying them that they're going to take on this extra work compared to what we want to pay these foreigners coming in? I think that's a really big question that the maybe the government doesn't want to talk about but we really need to be discussing. That was me in conversation with teacher trainer Jenna Cody. And before we go this week, the Council of Agriculture on Monday announced that it will soon require pet shop owners to register all information concerning the sales of their pets online in order to enable authorities to better check the origins of any animals sold. The move is, of course, part of government efforts to crack down and stamp out pet smuggling. And it comes after 154 smuggled cats were euthanised last month amid concerns that they could be carrying diseases such as rabies which pose a threat to the health of pets and livestock here in Taiwan. The cats, of course, were smuggled or were being attempted to be smuggled into Taiwan from China. And while existing laws do require pet shop owners to register the origin of each pet they sell, as well as the buyer's information, that's on paperwork and apparently it's yet to go on a computer, Dimitri. Well, I think it's it's good news. I mean, what happened what happened last month was 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 terrible. Uh, the, the the international coverage of that news uh, made. Taiwan sound like a, a country, a, a lawless country, where you can put down that many cats for just a silly reason because they couldn't even check whether these cats have had vaccines or not. But well, maybe there is also another reason: is that well, this is a huge business. 
a lot of uh, people investing. There are shops, pet shops everywhere, and this industry is growing bigger and bigger, and there is a need for more control and taxes. Uh, as long as you register all these information, these companies, these people are going to start to have paid taxes, which I think is, is long due. And uh, this system exists in other countries, and while I'm really optimistic, I'm really happy for Taiwan to move forward with such a very important legislation. It's a crying shame what happened to those kittens. It, it didn't have to have happen that way. There were um, very quickly, you know, people lined up, volunteers, money. They, we had all the resources to safely and humanely deal with those cats, and we took an international black eye for no reason. But Dimitri is right. These changes are good. We need more tracking. We need more accountability um, over Taiwan's increasingly behemoth pet industry. But I also have to ask you, why does Taiwan have this increasingly huge pet industry? Because we're not having children. And uh, I think in addition to making sure that Taiwan's pets are better tracked and better taken care of, the Taiwanese government should do some more to make it easier for Taiwanese families to have kids that they desperately want but can't afford. That was quite interesting. Blaming the lack of children for the euthanization of 154 kittens. That's a new one. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan <laughs> This Week. This week with me... Yeah, that, that's, you, don't, you don't come to Angelica for a linear thought process, Gavin. I think you know that by now. Yes. Anyway, I have been joined today by Angelica Ong. Uh, very nice to be here with you again, as always. And Dimitri Buyas. It was great to be here again. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.